Hello, hello, hello. It's me again, Stephen Coates, still wandering around, up and down, digging up rare stories, trying to educate myself into this vast, mysterious subject we call counterculture. Why don't you help me by coming and joining us at bureauoflostculture.com. You can get our newsletter, write to us with suggestions, and support our wild endeavours. Now, I was recently talking with a friend, Chris Tofu, about how to fill out these pictures of lost culture. And we were discussing the fact that counterculture has kind of evolved into subculture and then into multiculture. And that it's perhaps been a bit hard over the last years, what with Brexit and all that, to remember that we here in the UK are a nation of immigrants. I mean, London itself was founded by Italians, well, Romans. I mean, they were a mixed bunch, obviously. And then think of all the incomers since, the Angles, the Saxons, the Normans, the Huguenots, the Romanies, the Jews, the Irish, the people from Eastern Europe, the people from the Indian subcontinent, all of who have vastly enriched and made this thing we call our culture. So in this episode, it's great to welcome to the Bureau, Dennis Bevel, MBE, the godfather of British dub, to tell some of his stories in music and the countercultural life that took him from Barbados in 1953 to Wandsworth in 1965, just as London was starting to swing. A journey in which he became a renowned DJ, multi-instrumentalist, sound engineer, composer and producer. Made hundreds of records along the way, spanning reggae, lovers rock, soul, psychedelia, dub, punk, pop. Working with people as wide apart as Linton Quasi Johnson, The Slits, Madness, Banana Rama, The Pop Group, Fella Cootie, Marvin Gaye, The Boomtown Rats, Raichi Sakamoto, Dex's Midnight Runners and many more. And most recently Radiohead, The Animal Collective and Spoon. Phew. And along the way, we dig into the subjects of sound systems, cutting dub plates, Jimi Hendrix, musical sound clashes, Lee Scratch Perry, police harassment, wrongful arrest and imprisonment, and the joyful pleasures of eating breadfruit on a Barbados beach. Dennis, welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Pleasure. Hi. How's it going? All right. I'm coming to terms with the lull of the virus and the rise of another virus called war. Yeah, right. Strange times, right? May very, very strange times. I mean, that in these times, anyone should want to um, go to war with anyone. It's a shame, really. Mm. I mean, I was supposed to be in Ukraine next month and in Moscow in July. That's not going to happen for many, mm. many years now. But listen, Dennis, I would like to take you right back in time, mm. okay? I mean, you were born in Barbados, right? Back Correct. in the early 50s. Can you remember that? Yes. Um, my first memory um, is trying to be in between my mum and dad whilst they were in bed. <laughs> it's like, get out, get into your own bed. You know, kids like to get in bed with their mum and dad. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, really cosy to, to be cuddling up um, to both of them. Right, but <laughs> I'm not realising they didn't want me there. <laughs> How old do you think you were then? Then I think I was about three or four. Right. And my aunt, my mum's younger sister, said to me, I always thought you'd be a musician because you used to, you know, make up these little songs and, and make us laugh. And we used to, like, tease you to go and go, give us another one of your songs then. And I would, you know, come up with 
fiction, just write songs, just sing well, you, songs. You've already answered my second question because I, I was going to say, where did it all start? I mean, you know, your your epic, and I think that's the right word in your case, musical odyssey. So it started then, didn't it, when you were sort of three or four years old making up tunes? Yeah, because uh, my mum had me when she was 17. Mm. And being the oldest daughter of her father, who was... Um, a carpenter, he's also a, a musician and he taught music. And, you know, what happened was that my dad went to my granddad, my mum's my dad, to learn music. And whilst he was there, I happened. Ah, so okay. I was like, mm, that means it was music that brought me to be. Very good. I'm probably meant to be a musician. That was destiny, you know. Because, I mean, he went to this man's house to learn music and then fell in love with a man's daughter and I was the first production. Love it. So uh, whenever they went to choir practice, I was in tow. Mm. And I learned at an early age how to put harmonies together. And, you know, it's like what note went with what note to be a harmony, either in a major or a minor. My mum's brothers had a quartet used to sing in the island-wide Seventh-day Adventist churches. Well, my uncles would sing a cappella um, on the radio. We had um, piped radio in those days. It was, um, there wasn't FM yet, and the station was called Ready Fusion, good old English Ready Fusion. And um, they would bring a loudspeaker to your house on the wire and you just got a volume. You couldn't change the station. Mm. You just had it, had it on or off. And my uncles used to sing on the religious programs on that station. Uh, they were quite famous. So you you grew up bathing in sounds and music then, through the radio, through your mum, through your dad, through your uncles. Right through. You, you left Barbados at 12. Just tell us, Dennis, how that came about and why you came to... London. Well, um, I think by the time I was 12, I was getting a bit cheeky to my grandparents. I mean, I remember once when they um, threatened to give me a hiding. And my response was, well, you've to write to London and explain to my parents what it is I've done. And if they say, thrash him, I'll accept that, but don't you dare lay a finger on me unless you have permission written, from my written, parents. Written permission from written your permission. And I knew that letters took about two or three weeks to go. <laughs> <laughs> they would have forgotten the, forgotten the offence by the oh, time. Oh, my nan would never forget that. I would have a bit of grace, you know, before I got a thumping. <laughs> and so she would say, well, look, I'll tell you what, you know, we could solve this. You know, so, when are you going to live with your parents? <laughs> so, well, backtrack a bit then. So what? So your mum and dad were already here then, so yes. they'd, they'd left for work or for what reasons? Yeah. My dad um, answered the call for people to work in London transport mm. and came over to be a bus conductor in the 50s. And then mum followed two or three years later um, to study nursing. So she was a student nurse and he was a bus conductor, and they'd moved to London. And uh, I knew it was inevitable that they mm. would, you know, go, right, come on, we want our kids now. We've, met, You know, and then when Dad bought his first house, I was like, oh, no. 
That means I'm going to go and have to live. I'm going to have to go and live there. <laughs> and uh, I'd heard from friends who'd already taken up residence in London. Oh man, it's cold. <laughs> it was like it was like imagine being locked in the freezer <laughs> for six months. <laughs> You know, and then that's like scaremongering tactics. Right. I go, oh man, right. it's so cold here. You're better off there. And I was like, sun kissed us every day, you know, sure. and had the beach and lovely fish and fresh food. <laughs> and and my nan's cooking was exceptionally wonderful, you know. <laughs> and, um, well, I mean, so there must have been part of you that was keen to go. The part of me keen to go was to see if I could experience this um, other way of living in the city, because uh, I had lived in the rural areas, you know, and I was a right, country bumpkin. Um, there weren't many cars where I lived. We could play cricket in the road <laughs> and only be interrupted maybe every 20 minutes by a vehicle <laughs> passing. Walking from home to the beach, having the whole day at the beach, roasting breadfruit, now, if nobody knows what a breadfruit is, a breadfruit is the size of a football. Some of my family refused to eat them because they were um, thought to be as um, slave fodder, right? Um, because And one breadfruit could feed perhaps four people. Mm. And it's like a potato. It grows on a tree, but it's like a potato. And anything you can do with a potato, you could do with a breadfruit. And so... We'd pick one, take it down to the beach, get some wood, light a fire, roast the thing, and then throw it in the sea so it would get salty. Salty, right. Okay, so. <laughs> right. And then, or, or someone would have a penknife and, and cut the heart out, which is from at the top of the fruit where the stem where it hangs on the tree, cut that out and shove a piece of salt beef there and put it back in and roast it so that the, the juices from the beef had, you know... I can see why you actually, didn't want to go to Wadsworth. How did you get here? I was one of the first kids that flew in mm -hmm. to London. Uh, my dad had gone by boat from Barbados and it took a month almost, you know, been through Italy and all places like that. And um, so he said, no, 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 I can't let you three weeks on a boat on your own, you know, better put you on an aeroplane. And then BOAC had their first 707s. And so I was booked onto a 707 and I flew out of Barbados. And the plane couldn't make it to London without refueling. <laughs> so we stopped in Newfoundland at Gander Airport. And that was my first taste of, you know, a, another piece of soil outside of Barbados. <laughs> And so, because I was quite tall for a 12-year-old, I didn't have to wait for the stewards or the stewards. They just thought you were like a 16-year-old kid or something. Probably, like. yeah. So when it got there, all the other kids that were on the flight were told to sit and remain there. And, and I just threw my blanket on and went into Gander Airport just to sample the temperature. That must have been terribly exciting, though. It was, it? for a 12-year-old. You never left Barbados. I mean, you've not been on a plane, and neither had m most people then, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, outside the military, right? Most yeah. People, it, was a, it was generally like a wealthy person's thing, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Dropping by air, mm -hmm. 60s. I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember getting on the plane? I mean, you must yeah. have been so psyched up, right? I was completely. The, the, the 
the sad thing was though that my younger sister was screaming her head off. She wanted me to stay or she wanted to come right. with me. She was like, no, because we'd never been apart. Right. So she was clinging on mm. to you and screaming yeah. while you were trying to get on the airplane. That was a bit unnerving, actually. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I was quite brave and I thought, I'm not going to cry, mm. you know. Dennis, you land in mm. London. Did it Heathrow. Heathrow, right. And uh, I got off the plane, a lot of people there waiting, and then I walked straight up to my mum. She didn't see me. I went, hello, mum. Because <gasps> by then I'd I'd grown taller than her. Right. She was right. looking for someone the size what she left behind. Yeah, sure. Right, but yeah. I'd grown a good foot probably. Yeah. You know, and I and I walked up to her and I was looking down on her, and then she, what? Looking up in the air, thinking, "You've grown." <laughs> I go, "Well, yeah, I'm twelve now." You last saw me when I was seven. Yeah, right. That's amazing, isn't it? So, and then they took you home. And what was that like? What was that first taste, that first uh, scent or, well, or sight of London? All the houses looked like factories because mm. they're all stuck onto each other. Mm. And I had never experienced that because mm. in Barbados, your next door neighbour was never stuck onto you. It was mm. like fifty yards away or a hundred yards away the the next house, you know. So this was my first experience of experiencing mm. um houses with paper thin walls. So if the neighbour decided to thump his missus or, or she decided to thump him, right, we'd have ringside seats. <laughs> then coming to terms with people um who were around mm. and friends of my um parents who were not from Barbados, mm. from Trinidad, mm. from Grenada, from Jamaica, you know, and there's all these different accents. And for me, accents are like music, mm. you know, and I, and I tried to learn them all. So your parents were part of that community of different nations who'd come here in the sort of 50s and 60s, answering the call, as you described yeah. earlier, right? sort of ex-empire, ex-commonwealth, or commonwealth, whatever they call it yeah. then, right? And they'd sort of, by the time you got here, they'd made a made a home here and were part mm. of the community. And then mm. it, this was in Clapham, was it, or Wandsworth? Wandsworth. Wandsworth, right, well. yeah. So, uh, but I mean, that must have been a bit of a culture shock for you, right? Wandsworth, but I mean... There weren't of, a lot of black people. Right. So how was that? Well, I just had to adapt. Mm. Um, I was going to a school, I was going to a school where uh, it was 90% white kids... And all boys, you know what boys can give when they get up to get, you know. And so I had to immerse myself in this new culture. And uh, one of the first things I did was to let them know that I was a guitar player. Mm. And uh, at the time, our heroes were the shadows. I mean, Hank Marvin was a wonderful man, you know, played guitar really good, Chuck Berry, you know, all, all the notable guitar players, right? Mm. Yeah, because it was the rock and roll era, wasn't That's it? Right. So like a, a sort of a guy with a guitar, and it was usually guys, and the old guys with yeah. guitars, wasn't it? It was like a, that was like an icon, wasn't it? That's right. So when me coming from Barbados say, you know, I can play the guitar, and there was an existing group at school called Roadworks Ahead, and there was uh, three English boys, and they wanted a fourth player to play guitar and sing. So I thought that would be me. Hmm. Auditioned and they went, yeah, you're in. 
And so not only was my guitar playing a little bit more advanced than theirs, because I'd been doing it a longer for a longer period of time, but I then was the only black kid mm. in a white band, really, you know. And um, so, so that that made them different, right? Yeah. And they had the good, they had the good guitarist. They had the guy that was different. Well, that's, that's right. Sort of two two ingredients for that's success, right. right? And then we um, we did small faces covers, you know, all or nothing, you know, and um, the nineteen ten fruit gun company. Put your hand in the air, simple Simon says, you know. And those were popular tunes. And then we branched out to Otis Redding. I got sunshine on a cloudy day, you know. And uh, um, Wilson Pickett, I'm going to wait till the midnight hour, you know. And then Satisfaction, you know. And then The Who, Mm can't explain, right? It's early Who stuff. And, and we practiced and played all those tunes for school assemblies, <laughs> for friends' birthday parties. And there's that. So that music, right, the beat stuff, the rock and roll stuff, right, the R&B stuff, as they call mm-hmm. it. Had you been playing that in Barbados? So what had you been playing there? <laughs> well, in Barbados now, we had... Um, Calypso, mm-hmm. and um, there would be the mighty Sparrow, mm-hmm. who was the champion of that, and um, Lord Kitchener, mm-hmm. and we also listened to Ray Charles and Benny King. Uh, then uh, there was a man from Barbados by the name of Jackie Opel, and he was the singer of a group in Jamaica called the Scatolites. Mm-hmm. So we had the Scatolites tunes because our boy Jackie was the singer. And um, my <clears throat> two of my uncles were sent to Jamaica by granddad to university, University of the West Indies. Um, mm. The eldest one managed to become a professor of mathematics, right. a PhD, and then he taught in Canada. And the younger one did physics and chemistry. In fact, um, he was the dean of the science faculty of um, the University of the West Indies campus in Trinidad. And uh, these were people that I had grown up following and to to follow in their academical footsteps was like, what? You know, because granddad, he didn't have much money, so he thought, well, look, the best way for you lot to get on in life is to get an education. Yeah, right. The the younger brother now, was he was the ragamuffin of the family. He played guitar, and he taught me to play the guitar. And um, subsequently, he uh, moved to Canada mm-hmm. and played in the bands there and, uh, you know, around the world, and in fact. So did you ever have this sense of these two routes you could go down? You go down the, <clears throat> the family tradition of academia, mm-hmm. right? or the other family tradition of music, or was it always a done deal for you? Well, you see, the thing is that I caught the music bug quite early. Mm. And um, I loved, you know, doing harmonies. And, mm. and So when my my newfound friends in, in England were interested in music, that was it. And I managed to convince my dad to let me turn the 
basement of our house into a rehearsal room, studio. And he was he welcomed that because right. it meant that I was not on the streets. Up to mischief. Yeah, or, or being um, hounded by the police right. for, for nothing. Yeah. You know, he was always very mindful of that or hanging with the wrong crowd. But your new phone friends, as you call them, you know, your fellow members in uh, Roadbooks Ahead, you were quite a catch, weren't you? Because you can play guitar, but and everybody mm. else. You've got, you've got a bit of soul as well. Which yeah, you, I had a stronger voice than them. Stronger theirs. voice than them, yeah. right. And also, you've got a rehearsal room in your basement. Yeah, who could want more? So you guys started rehearsing there. But when that band kind of fizzled out and I had a new band called Stonehenge, that was the time when... My dad let me bring the musicians. Well, tell home. us about Stonehenge then, because that's got a bit of a different feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, Stonehenge was more of a um, a rock band and uh, rock and blues, mm. and we did a bit of um, early four tops kind mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, two older boys and three of us that were the same age. We played for a while, but it didn't quite gel because they wanted to go on to play like Osibisa, Afro Rock, you know. And us, the youngers, wanted to make a reggae band. And the elders like, no, no, we're not playing reggae. <laughs> and we're like, we're not playing Afro Rock, so the band had to split. Right. And the band then became Matumbi. Ah, right, okay. Well, listen, before we get on to that, that next massive chapter... Mm. I just want to uh, fill out the picture, Dennis. So you mentioned it earlier about your dad being a bit nervous about you being out on the street, not just because mm. of getting into trouble, but in case you get harassed by the, by the police and stuff. Mm. What was it like just being a black kid in London at that time? And we, I mean, your friends have taken you in eagerly, right? But I mean, was that a general thing? or? Well, no. There were lots of black children being taken to the cells. I mean, the era that I grew up in, a, a person who was often harassed by the police was Frank Bruno. Hmm. And we were always hearing, oh, Frank's being nicked again. Hmm. Frank, you know, because Frank wouldn't take any crap. Right. No wonder he became a big boxer. Right? But he always had that, I don't take no from hmm. nobody. And... There was other boys, you know, of his age that were a bit older than me that were always in trouble with police. And um, at one point, I would go, go on, tell us, did you do it? They go, no, man, I was stitched up. And not until I was stitched up mm. myself much years later did I ever realise that it was possible. So we're talking now, is it like late 60s, early 70s? Is, mm. this, is that sort of time, right? Right, yeah. And you... Brought in this thing with Stonehenge about half the band wanting to play reggae and half yeah. the band more Afrobeat stuff. And did, when you playing reggae music sort of well, into think, the scene? Um, by the emergence of Desmond Decker. Mm -hmm. Desmond Decker was an icon. He was the kind of man that could take a reggae tune to number one. Also, uh, the emergence of Toots and the Maytals. Mm -hmm. The Pioneers, Nicky Thomas, um, a group called Greyhound. Um, they had scaled the number one spot with this tune. The page is white. 
the Inkies, Black, whatever it's, you know, girl. And um, they were friends. And Freddie Notes had a group called The Rudies, Freddie Notes and The Rudies, right? And they were cutting it with live performances. And um, Jamaican popular music was taking a hold on the UK. I mean, there was Harry J in the All Stars, The Liquidator, you know. Um, to this day, that's like the theme song of Chelsea Football Club. The Upsetters were coming in. Reggae was featuring, and not a lot of people knew how to play. It was featuring because of the community of people that have come to the UK, including your parents, and, and then subscribing you. to it. And then that's the music that was, was close to them. That's what they wanted yeah. to listen to. And also mm -hmm. they were playing it. So it's, then it started to spread out into the culture. Well, this is late 60s, early 70s, right? So in London, I mean, you know, in the UK, in the West, you know, there's this, the counterculture's going on, the hippie stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, were you aware of that? Or was of it course. like, was it, was it something that you, you had a connection with, that hippie idealism and stuff? Or? Yes. I used to go on a Sunday morning to Petticoat Lane looking for ex-military stuff. You know, those um, huge, long trench coats that the Germans wore, that grey is kind of warm. And um, the sailors' trousers were a bit flared, uh, and they were white, and you could dye them, you know, green, pink, pink, or you could tie-dye them in a hippie style. And so we were dressing in that, you know, that way. And in fact... Uh, groups like the Rolling Stones had gone to Jamaica to record an album called Goathead Soup. Mm -hmm. um, the Beatles had ventured into it with Obladi Oblada. Um, you know, English musicians were subscribing heavily to the Jamaican sound. Mm -hmm. The oompa, 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 right? And um, so it struck me and my friends that that was going to be the next big thing. Right. And we better jump in it now. Right? Right. So you were you were quite tuned in to everything that's gone in the music world. What about all the other stuff? The protests, the idealism yeah. about... I was right in there. You were in there. Well, because that, that coincided with the Afro thing. Wild-looking people. And then along came the wildest man of all, Jimi Hendrix. Right. You know... And that was a person that I wanted to be like, yeah, yeah, that he plays guitar like a madman, but lovely. What was the impact of Hendrix, particularly when he came to London? You know, I just see that through the lens of like history, right? But I mean, mm. he was totally different, wasn't he? I mean, what was it like for you to see somebody well, like that for the first time? I remembered um, we used to run home from school on whatever evening it was that Ready Steady Go used mm. to be on, and Kathy McGowan. Uh, ready, steady, go. And um, that evening, we'd just go straight home and everyone would be at their house watching telly. And one such time, on comes this guy, hey, Joe. And then he takes a solo. And then my phone's ringing. My friend, Tony Sims, going, did you see that? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Man. What, the guy was eating the guitar, <laughs> you know, and we spoke, we probably spoke for about an hour about how fantastic he was and how 
we had to go and see his live show. Right. He was playing in Collier's Wood right. in, a, in a pub somewhere. And um, You saw Hendrix in Collier's Wood in a pub? Yeah. What was that like? Fantastic. Electric. And when he threw the guitar on the floor and threw lighter fluid on it and lit the damn thing, it was like, oh, God, it's going to burn the place down. And the guitar was on the floor giving feedback, and he was just standing on the... Um, the whammy bar, you know, tremolo arm, and he was playing something else, you know. He 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 really tore it up for me. It was like, yeah. That was a moment, was it, for you then? That was it. Yeah, so Hendrix is in the mix as well. Yep. All the reggae stuff, yeah. R&B, it's all coming together. Take us through the next bit, Dennis, and I want to also get to you in the sound systems. Just take us through that period. The school had built a recording studio. Now, this recording studio was built to assist the English department and the drama group. And uh, this studio was to take care of the sound effects, you know, for, for the play. I had the idea to bring some lads into the studio and record some music um, outside of school hours because... Every evening, when the schoolkeeper was locking up that whole complex, we pleaded with him to lock up the, the studio last. So he'd be about an hour or so around all the classrooms locking him up, and then he'd come to the studio and go, that's it, lads, got to go now. But we'd have an hour, two hours, while he was doing that to you know help ourselves to make music and stuff. So we... You know, wrote songs, recorded stuff. That was your first taste then of actually the studio, though, right? Where you actually yeah, can, yeah, where, where, was, where you can yeah. mix stuff as well. Yeah. Record and mix. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And so I'd been making what we call dub plates mm. in the studio. They had a lathe and you could cut? No, we weren't um, cut there. We were cutting at R.G. Jones in Wimbledon. R.G. Jones is one of the oldest recording studios in London. Um, I think the last time I was there, I asked Sir Cliff Richards to move his car. <laughs> we asked him to do us a bit of backing vocal. He said, yeah, yeah, come on, I'll do it. Excellent. <laughs> so I was also doing an apprenticeship, learning about lathe disc cutting. So on a Saturday morning, he'd cut me a few discs, you know, seven-inch acetates if I wanted to. And then I'd take them around to the sound systems and flog them for a few quid. Hold on a second. So you've gone. You've got. Some, you're getting to studio time at school. Mm -hmm. You're apprenticing at the weekend, where you're actually getting experience actually cutting stuff as mm -hmm. well. So you're actually able to make music, record it, and also you wanted to put it on disc. Bring it on disc. Wow, that's pretty good going. And already. show off at the blues dance. You know, just come with a, a new acetate and go. Hey, you want to play this in the play? And go what? One of the first ones I had was a trombone version of Guantanamera. <laughs> and um, uh, a sound system by the name of Jim Daddy persuaded me to let him have it for three quid. <laughs> and uh, in them times, three quid was like a lot yeah, of money. Business. Um, yeah, I think we got a taxi home. Sounds like you got the whole of the music industry going there. Well, the thing is that I also did typography at school. In my lunch break or something, set up um, any amount of cards that people wanted to advertise uh, blues dances and print them for the sound system. So I, I knew where all the blues dances were. 
So kids that wanted to go out on a party on a Saturday night, this is by the time I was like right. 16. Yeah. Going out to so you, you're the man, right? You've all, you've got, you know where I've all the parties are I've got studios, I've got dub plates, I've got, um, all, I've got all the invites to the thing, because I'm printing these cards at school on the print, printing press. Right marketing there. department and the whole the thing. whole lot. Right. Here is a sidebar on sound systems, thanks to the good folk at Notting Hill Carnival. A sound system is a super amplified mobile system with a unique name operated by a crew of individuals who together create a unique party vibe wherever they set up and play. The systems originated in Jamaica in the 1950s, probably from people going back and forth to America and hearing R&B bands playing through PA systems, plus the New York block parties where DJs set up PAs and sold booze to make some money. Back in Jamaica, as bands were often expensive to hire, poor people might play records through rough and ready PA systems consisting of a turntable, a home-built valve amplifier and the biggest speakers they could lay their hands on, often mounted in wardrobe-type cabinets, some even nailed and glued together with chicken wire. By the late 50s and early 60s, these systems had become more sophisticated, playing at blues dances, often in the open air, and at times to thousands of people. With the migration of Jamaicans, along with many other people from the British Commonwealth to the UK in the late 50s and 60s for the purposes of work, the tradition of sound systems was also exported, and each system started to gather followings, with various ideas and directions, and often becoming business ventures. During the 70s and 80s, every area of London, every city with a West Indian population, had their own crop of sound systems. It was important to build a sound. One man, and it was mainly men in those days, would mainly buy the music, another had interest in electronics, and one would like to MC to talk on the mic, rapping over the music. There was also the selector, who selected the music and rhythm tracks, and a younger member of the crew, who was learning about the equipment and how to play a sound, and had the status of box boy. His particular job was to lift the heavy speaker boxes at the end of the night. The popularity of the systems was mainly contingent on one thing, having new music. Sound system superstars turned to record production themselves. Initially, they produced only singles for their own systems, known as dubplates, limited runs of one copy per song. They took pride in this achievement to the point of challenging each other to competitions or sound clashes, where each system sought to win over the crowd by any means possible, such as playing an exclusive record, a tune by a well-known artist, by the bravado of the DJ or the person on the mic, and by sometimes turning up the bass and drowning out the other system's sound. My dad had an amateur sound system. Uh, his sound system was called um, Tropical Soundmaster. Uh, and uh, he played in blues dance parties for friends, you know, uh, from the London Transport and because mum was a nurse, you know. There was often uh, lots of marriages between um, NHS staff and transport staff because they were like from the same islands and, you know, whatever they did. And my dad had a big record collection and he had a 50-watt amp and he had... Um, four or five 18 inch speakers hooked up to it. it made a hell of a noise and um 
So whilst he was doing that, I was kind of listening to the, the songs and listening to the, the way that people were grooving to it and that. So when a friend of mine, Owen Kerr, came and said, I heard that you've been cutting dub plates at the school. I was like, yeah, he's going, let's um, hear him. Now that kid was um, one of the kids that I went to school with the very first day that I went to that school, right? And so um, I offered him to come around my house. I came around the house and I put my tape recorder on and I started playing these dub tunes. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want this. I want and I'm like, what are you going to? He's like, starting a new sound system. I go, well, have you got a DJ? Then not yet. I go, well, that would be me then. So you put yourself forward to be the DJ for his sound system? Yeah. We had about 30 helpers and we had two Luton vans and had a tremendous amount of equipment and went, you know, to play house parties. And we were resident in a club in Stockwell on Sundays called the Lansdowne. On Fridays, we did the Metro in Ladbrook Grove from 7 to 11. And then from 12 till 6 in the morning, we did um, a club called the Carib Club in Cricklewood. Long, long night. Long night, yeah. So you're taking the gear around with you as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Moving it, setting it up and de-rigging it. Yeah. That is a long night. So there was a network of people, a network of venues... You yeah. were doing it, and did you have your own sort of flavour? Were you sort of known for a particular oh, yeah, we, thing that you did that was different than others, maybe? I had dub plates mm-hmm. that sang about mm. the sound system. In fact, um, there was a singer called Gene Rondo, and he had a, a single called Sweet Africa, and the chorus was like, Oh, Sweet Africa. Land of my forefather. Right. And this was um, produced by another sound system owner called Count Shelley. Now, Count Shelley was one of what we called the big four. Sir Coxon, Jules Creed, Count Shelley, Neville the Enchanter. Those Mm. were the four big sound systems, you know, in London. Well, probably in the UK, but definitely in London. And um, Count Shelley had, was making the transition from sound system man to record shop owner and mm. record producer. And one of the songs that he recorded was with Gene Rondo, Sweet Africa. And it was a tremendously popular song. I took the intro of that song, made a loop of it, and then sang the same melody with different words. So instead of all sweet Africa, I was going, oh, sweet sufferer. (laughs) Because your sound system was Jar Sufferer. Yeah. You know, bigging up the sound system. I think I was probably one of the first people to do that. I mean, they other people had dub plays where people were talking about the sound, but a song, a melody with harmonies about the sound system was new, right? So I made that, and that, and then I made a point of at 10 o'clock when I began my dub shower, that would be my anthem. I'd play that. And I witnessed, I took the, the, the needle off the, the record to hear the audience singing, singing along, along. Looping round and round. Yeah, you know. Right. So we started that, singing at a dance. 
So it's this is all like kind of jigsaw pieces adding to the picture of uh, you know what happens next. So that and that whole culture of sound systems, right, which mm. is still going on, right? So it's not yeah. like it stopped. It's, uh, it's bigger in Italy now than it was over here. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. in France. From being an underground thing, it started to go overground, didn't it? As well. Yeah, it started to annoy the neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come to a sort of unfortunate incident because mm. we're a painful incident for you, isn't it? Because um, you know, you mentioned earlier about you know run-ins with the London police and stuff, mm-hmm. and this is around about the time when you actually get busted for something which you didn't well, do. Well, the thing is, right, that I wasn't actually busted because the police came to a club where I was playing. There was an incident with uh, some of the members of the the club or fighting with the police. Now that had coincided with me playing against a sound system called Lord Coos. And Lord Coos was in the opposite corner, and I'm in my corner with Lee Scratch Perry's in my corner. <laughs> Bunny Lee is in Lord Coos's corner. Right? This is like some sort of boxing match, is it? Musical boxing it, it, match, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's like How that. does that it's work like, then? So they, well, they do a track, then you do one, and yeah, then... Yeah, and the, 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 the audience reaction is what decides which track is heavier than what, mm. right? The louder the audience go, hey, you know. And um, that day, Lee Perry had come to London, and I got a friend, Larry Lawrence, to go to the airport and pick him up and bring him over to our side because we knew he was carrying dub plates that he was going to sell to the highest bidder, the first come, first serve. And we wanted to be the first come. Mm. So... We brought him with it. He was with us the whole day until I played that evening. And when it came for the moment when I was going to, you know, put my trump card down, (laughs) I put a tune that Lee Perry had given to me as a dub play, and I knew that I was the only sound system in London that night that had a copy of that record. So I made a big meal out of it. And when I put it on, the audience went ape, it was at that time that a fight broke out between police and people in the dance. But I didn't know that that time. I just knew there was a fight. The day after that fracas, I was around Ladbroke Grove and some people were going, Oi, the cops were looking for you last night. I'm going, why? They're going, well, all the talk in the station was, who is Suffer's DJ? We want him. And... Me, I went down to the police station to say, I heard (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you're looking for me. Here I am. What do you want? And so they (laughs) accused me of using a microphone to stir up the crowd against the police, effectively causing an affray. Or inciting a riot or something, right? It was untrue. And um, I spent nine months, two trials trying to clear myself after being charged with that. Um, And I'd never been inside of a police station before or charged with anything before. And um, the first trial was six months at the Old Bailey. And at the end of that trial, nine of 12 people charged with having caused this affray were acquitted. That's just to show what a farce it was, okay? Uh, Three of these people had a hung jury. I was one of the three. 
I was accused of being the ringleader. Now, all these people were supposed to be in my gang that, that duffed up these coffers. I didn't know a single one of them. Never met a single one of them before. And they said that I said, get the boys in blue. Now, which black man would be saying, get the boys in blue to a audience of black people i said to him don't be stupid if i was going to say something like that i'd be like dirty babylon you know we used to call the cops john crow do you know what john crow is a jamaican term for vultures right right um or pigs you know that's a nice hippie term <laughs> if he'd have said um he said get the pigs yeah, get the boys in blue. It sounds like something that you get on the on a BBC drama, doesn't it? Absolutely. Like, you know, the time. And they said that I said that, and I said, "Mate, when the cops come in the room, my only announcement was, watch your ganja. They're here to <laughs> they're here to take your weed, <laughs> because that's what they do quite often. They mm-hmm. go into a place, raid it, and of course, anyone who's carrying weed mm-hmm. drop it on the floor." Mm-hmm. Right, and then they would come, and if they didn't like the look of the person whose feet it was at, they would go, right, this is yours, you're coming with us. And it might not have been, even been that person, that it was kicked over to that person's feet and found at their feet, right? And quite a lot of people have been criminalised. Do you think that they were trying to make an example, maybe not even of you, to set somebody up like that and follow it all the way through? Yeah. What was behind that? Well, the, after the first trial, I said, well, you haven't found me guilty, so my innocence mm-hmm. should be presumed. Because the law says mm-hmm. a man is innocent until he's been proven guilty. You haven't proved my guilt. Mm-hmm. The jury has refused to bring in a verdict on me, so I, therefore I should be innocent. He went, no, no, we're going to retry this. After. And then at the end of that trial, they managed to secure um, a, a majority verdict. So the judge took it upon himself to sentence me to three years in prison. I mean, the thing was that there's these cops saying that they went into this dance hall pursuant of a person who'd been driving a vehicle outside suspiciously and who'd run into the club. How on earth does someone run past a queue of people waiting to get into a club, past the bouncers and into the club before you can catch them? I mean, he must have been the club owner's son <laughs> or known to the bonksers, you know. It's not, Third, the, not the first place you'd run to, is it? None of that was brought to court. We were in the club, mm. uh, we were arresting someone and uh, a guy stood on the stage with a microphone in his hand directing the, the, the audience against us. That did not happen. I said to the judge, all right, let's get a lie detector test in mm. here. I'm ready to take it. Are they ready to take it? And the judge said, do you expect me to believe that police officers would, uh, on the oath, uh, lie on the Bible and all that? I mean, mate, it ain't the first time and it probably won't be the last either. So you get sentenced to three years. I appeal. Yeah. My appeal takes six months before Mm. it's heard at the Central Criminal Courts, upon which I am freed. Uh, uh, my sentence was quashed and my conviction was quashed. Mm. I, I received what amounted to a pardon. Mm. What was that six months like then? Sad to say, I knew a lot of people who would have been in there, people who I'd been keeping away from, because I knew they were going to end up there. And then suddenly I'm in there, they go, oh, ho, 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 ho. Which prison was it? 
Wormwood Scrubs. Right. I'm a bit of a celebrity now because I'm a sufferer's mm-hmm. DJ, right? And um, the case was widely, widely publicized. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also a member of Matumbi. And Matumbi has just released a new tune called After Tonight. And that tune is making waves on the street. Yeah, you're banged up. <laughs> yeah. But the the members of the band rallied around, the public rallied around. There was demonstrations outside the court and everything. And then the appeal judges say, well, there wasn't enough evidence to even have charged him with that. How come he got charged with that? And I said, you know how? I was fitted up. Mm. You know, your time in prison, you did sort of put it to some... You, didn't you, right? You were still working on tunes. And yeah, stuff and- I, I wrote songs um, whilst I was there. Songs that by the time I was released, we were able to release those songs uh, on a new deal mm. with EMI Records. And Dennis, looking back, I don't want to dwell on it, obviously, but I mean, there must have been a deep sense of injustice and anger at what oh, happened. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about it now? Well, I'm still bitter about it, but what can you do? I had to move on because mm. what did me in, really, was my ability to speak like a Londoner. Because I was at pains whilst I was in court that there should be no doubt as to my intelligence and that, you know, I was being fitted up for this. If I'd gone in there and gone, Chaman, you know, I mean, even with them thing there, you know, stuff, they could never have attributed Get the Voice in Blue to me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right? <laughs> The, the the two officers that said they saw me on the stage, the light was on, and I was stood on the stage with a microphone saying what they said I said. There were other officers who said, yeah, we were in that room, the lights were off, and there was other black people in there, we couldn't see nothing, but there was a guy on the microphone. I then turned and said, well, that could have been a talking record. The judge interjected and went, do you expect me to believe that people talk on record? Where is that judge now? I want to say to him, yo, hear this. You know what? I mean, it's just the, it was it was one incident in a long line of such incidents. Though, wasn't yes. it? Uh, you, you came out and you you didn't let it even get in your way, did you? Because actually Matumba, you know, yeah, I was on your and first up. big band was yeah. already up and running. That's right. right? We were touring then, with Ian Drew in the Blockheads. I'm you, touring with Peter Tosh. I'm yeah. touring with doing shows with Bob Mutt, you know. Yeah. You, were, you were straight back into it, weren't you? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, there's a, you know, Matumba is, you know, the, like I said, the first of... I mean, you know, almost countless acts in your case, right, that you've mm. either been, worked with or produced, right? Mm, mm, mm. And um, so your sort of whole musical professional life is blowing up, isn't it? Hit, single, yeah. hit singles. You know, you go you go from underground to overground big time because you start producing other people, you're working in studios. You know? Yeah. And we haven't got time to cover all that stuff. But what I wanted to talk about a bit more is your involvement with the punk scene mm. because... Musically speaking, it's so radically different from what you've mm. been up to, right? Isn't it? It's a different thing. There was a dub connection, wasn't it, with the post-punk scene? John Lydon, yeah. right? You know, and uh, Jar Wobble, yeah. you know, and Adrian Sherwood later. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so were you pa- partly responsible for bringing that in? Do you think well, I had, a, I had a hand mm. in, 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 you know, arresting it. <laughs> <laughs> you got a long list, haven't you? The slits, yeah, and uh, the pop group, Orange Juice, Madness. Mm-hmm. Boomtown Rats, and mm-hmm. then uh, Dex's, right? Edwin mm-hmm. Collins. Mm-hmm. I even noticed Ruchi Sakamoto in your list. Yeah, Ruchi like, Sakamoto. 
You've covered the uh, genres, haven't you? Rock, reggae, lovers rock. Yeah. Uh, Calypso, right at the beginning. Yeah. R&B. Yeah. Right, psychedelic. Just uh, recently, um, Johnny Greenwood got in touch and said, look, we're forming a new band. Uh, him, Tom York, and a drummer called Tom Skinner put a new band together, and the band's called The Smile. And they just released their first record. And when they recorded it, Johnny sent it to me and said, I think you should mix this tune. In fact, The the Smoke, the tune's mm. called. Right, okay. Also, okay, I've been, I'm working at the moment with um, and uh, I've just remixed uh, quite a portion of The Spoon album. Spoon is an American rock band from uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, they sent me their album during lockdown. They said, we want you to mix the single, but we don't know which one it is. So I listened to the album. I said, lads, there's a possible five tunes mm. that could be the single. And then they came back with, mix them all. Mm. You're busy. Well, let's finish up and talk about the Dubmaster. So this essential anthology. It's, well, it's, it's an epic collection, mm, isn't it? It's two... It's a, a mapping out of how I began to make music um, as a solo mm. person, also as a producer, a double mm. album. The, on there, I'm, I'm showcasing the very first tune that I recorded in Gooseberry Studios in Soho. My friend Nick Straker and I wrote a song and decided that we wanted to record that song immediately. So we jumped on the number 19 bus from Clapham Junction and arrived in um, Shaftesbury Avenue to find this studio in Gerrard Street in Chinatown and made it the home of recording and recorded several uh, tasty pieces of music there, including Viola Wells, Gonna Get Along Without You Now, uh, Linton Cressy Johnson's albums, uh, Janet Kay, Silly Games, um, Gary Newman recorded there, and um, Our Friends Electric was recorded there, and uh, the engineer was my assistant, John Caffrey. Record Our Friends Electric was number one in the charts, and Silly Games was number two. And uh, those two tunes began in Gooseberry Studios. And uh, my assistant's record was at number one and mine was at number two, you know. <laughs> Could but... love it. Dennis, you, you were awarded last year, 2021, an MBE. Yes. Master of the British Empire, right? So yeah. how did that make you feel? It, it made me feel recognised mm. that anyone in those circles even knew what it was that I did. I was giving it for my services to music. And... Um, proudly announced it to my mother who said you're taking that you are because <laughs> you don't you know son of mine she's like imagine <laughs> you know. so for her that was that must have been magic oh yeah i mean right. she's like right. over the moon my son's yeah. got an mbe and i'm pleased to mm. accepted it you know they've got this, this phrase isn't there sort of revenge is a dish best tasted cold yeah and i mean best you know, served best cold. served cold <laughs> thank you and you went through all that shit with the with the police and the court case and mm -hmm. all that stuff and you know it's a sort yeah. of come full circle isn't it in a way Absolutely. in some ways it worked itself out for you if not for other people but um dennis we got to the end of our time i mean there's a massive list of things we didn't get a chance to talk about mm. about all your other work right but if you sort of think back to that kid on the beach with the breadfruit roasting it 
and you know in Barbados all those years ago. What might he have said to the future Dennis Bavel? Yeah, he would have said, "Let's go for it. First of all, learn Cockney. <laughs> learn how to go. All right, mate. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ditch that Bajan accent because uh, nobody much understood it. And when I spoke with my deep uh, rural Bajan accent." Um, people go, what? You know, because um, for instance, if you take um, a phrase like, what did I tell you? And translate it to Bajan, it would be, Waitel. <laughs> Quite a short circuit. Huh? Um, I said, can you hear what I'm telling you? You can hear Waitel? <laughs> it's... You know, it's a bit different. A bit different. <laughs> it's English, though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Wivell, thank you very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to walk us through a little bit of your life in the counterculture. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure remembering all that stuff. I thought I'd forgotten most of it. <laughs> So there you have it, Dennis Bavel, MBE. I'll put links to Dennis's work in the show notes. Uh, his retrospective, Dubmeister, the essential anthologies out now with BMG. Thanks to Chris and to Garfield for suggesting Dennis and to Rachel for hooking us up. And thanks to you for listening. Come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com, for a lot more. Get the newsletter. Write to us with your thoughts and suggestions on counterculture and stories you would like to hear. And support us in our wild endeavours. See you next time. Let's finish with one of Dennis's tracks from the anthology. This is... The Grunwick Affair.